Hi, I'm Andrew Muir, Creative Director at Ardent Theatre. If you enjoy this show, please share, subscribe and leave us a five-star review. Thanks for listening. On a June morning in 1984, one of the most violent episodes in British industrial relations unfolded. 5,000 striking miners gathered at the Orgreave Coke processing plant in South Yorkshire. They'd face an assault by some 6,000 police. As police and picketers clashed, John Hendy, now Lord Hendy KC, was a legal rep for the National Union of Miners. Thatcher and her cronies decided to try and smash the trade union movement and they organised set pieces in order to, to do that. Len McCluskey, later head of Unite the Union, was a full-time official. The miners have a special place in the heart of ordinary working people. And once they were defeated, it was really, really bleak. I'm Andrew Muir, and this is Activism in the 80s, where we chart the protests and culture wars that changed lives in Britain, Ireland and beyond. That clash at Orgreave happened as another strike by staff at the Irish department store Dunn's was still in its infancy. In this episode, Justice for Grenfell co-founder Yvette Williams explores how the 80s changed the face of British trade unions with John and Len, who opens the discussion with a look back on how the miners' strike overshadowed the dispute at Dunn's. What did I know about it back in 1984? Well, you have to remember that the Dunn strike took place in July 1984, and there was already the great miners' strike in play a few months earlier, which occupied most activists' minds. And I knew about the Dunn strike, although it was undoubtedly overshadowed by the miners' strike because the Dunn strike was a heroic strike. Those women and one man who came out on strike were individuals who weren't particularly politicised, unlike you might say many miners who have a tradition of knowing what uh, the establishment is all about. And it was an incredible dispute by these ordinary people. They are genuinely heroes in my mind. What did it have an impact on? Well, my union, the Transport and General Workers Union, also operates within Southern Ireland. Therefore, I was aware what was going on. I was aware of the kind of support. But my colleagues, my comrades over in the Republic say it had an incredible impact and it had a lasting image of people being prepared to stand up and tell truth to power. John, um, Len has just touched on the miners' strike being almost like the decisive and focused thing that is happening, um, especially in the mid-80s. What's your recollection of what's happening at that time? I agree with Len, the strike was, in Britain anyway, completely overshadowed by the miners' strike. Of course, the Duns' strikers lasted a, a lot longer than the, the miners' strike, and I didn't realise that they had such a worldwide audience. The fact that one of them addressed the General Assembly of the United Nations in New York, I was just amazed. These are ordinary, if I may use that word, shop workers, extraordinary shop workers, and to hold out on strike for, what is it, two years and nine months? Absolutely staggering achievement. But the 80s, of course, was a very significant 
period for British trade unionism. The real marker, of course, was the coming to power of Margaret Thatcher in 1979, and with it, the supremacy of the doctrine of neoliberalism, which, so far as trade unions are, are concerned, is an extreme form of capitalism. Any attempt by trade unionists or trade unions to combine together to achieve collective bargaining or still more if they exercise the right to strike in furtherance of collective bargaining is regarded by the neoliberals as a distortion of the labour market. And that's why Thatcher and her cronies decided to try and smash the trade union movement. And they organised set pieces in order to do that. Unfortunately, notwithstanding the heroism of the miners who stood out for a, an entire year from March 84 to March 85, the miners' strike did not succeed and the consequences for the labour movement have been absolutely catastrophic because it meant that capitalism was supreme and that the trade unions didn't have the power to resist the onslaught on living standards, which we're only seeing today. 14 million people living now today below the poverty line, 5 million of them children, wages stagnant since 2008, all really partly as a consequence of the miners' strike and the onslaught of the Tories and neoliberalism. So the 1980s was a, a crucial decade in British history. Let me just uh, add a couple of things about the 1980s, because it also demonstrated the inability of the trade union leaders to understand what was happening. The first strike that took place and the first attack on trade unions was the steelworkers in 1980. And right throughout that period, the trade union movement was impotent and the trade union general secretaries were split. Eric Hammond and Frank Chappell, right-wing regional secretaries who were effectively on the boss's side, effectively on Thatcher's side. And unfortunately, there was no left leadership to fight back. In 1980, the steel strike took place and Thatcher decided to take on the steelworkers. They were on strike for about 12 weeks. And then the dockers decided to call a national strike because dockers in Liverpool were being penalised for not moving steel that was being imported. And the dockers, the Transport and General Workers Union, called a national dock strike in support of the steelworkers. At that time, a national dock strike would have brought the country to a stance that was incredibly powerful. On the same day that the dockers' leaders were meeting in London, the ISTC executive, the Steelworkers Union, was meeting literally a mile away in King's Cross and called the strike off at the very point in time where they had victory within their grasp. And had that not have happened, perhaps Thatcher would have been halted in air tracks. Now, that's because of the right-wing leadership that the ISTC had. 
But it was a period that we should look back with some shame because had we have rallied in a way that we should have done, I think she would have been stopped. And the devastation that was caused in, for example, my community in Liverpool and indeed working class communities everywhere, it's a disgrace that our movement, and of course the Labour Party was not much better, it's a black period to look back on. Uh, Two footnotes to that, Yvette. One is in relation to the National Steel strike. I was junior counsel on a case called Duport Steels and Sirs, which went to the House of Lords to get an injunction to prevent the national strike, and we won. So the steel workers had the advantage of having a lawful strike, unlike many other strikes which have been declared unlawful, and yet they still did what Lenny has said. And the other footnote is that there were other betrayals, for example, in the miners' strike, where the sort of managerial ranks within the coal mines decided that they weren't going to go on strike. And the effect of that was the strike in the coal mines was not, uh, national and what's not extended to every pit and it would have been if the management had been pulled out and of course they suffered the same as the rest of the mining communities after the defeat of the miners strike and the consequences for the mining communities has possibly been even worse than in big cities like Liverpool absolutely shattered no employment drugs crime the very opposite of what a transition to a new, different, green economy ought to be. I'm hearing that ultimately it was a painful time. The unions were defeated so badly. Do you think there's a defining moment where if the unions had taken a different road, if we would be in a different place now? Well, of course, I've just mentioned the steel strike. If we'd have defeated Thatcher then. The whole of the 80s would have been different. But what does happen is defeat breeds a defeatism, a pessimism. And as the defeats mounted up in the 80s, because we didn't win many, on a Friday, they'd announce in the newspapers the closure of various firms, and it was just horrific. And we tried lots of things, occupation in Meccano, factory, civil disobedience when Dunlop's closed, sitting down in the roadblock and places. None of it worked. If workers have confidence, then anything is possible. But when workers looked at the disputes and the strikes, and every one of them was being defeated, then, of course, that downbeat uh, pessimism built and built and built. The minor strike perhaps was the worst because I've never seen such a desperate wish from communities right throughout the land wanting the miners to win. The miners have a special place in the heart of ordinary working people. And once they were defeated, it was really, really bleak and workers just didn't feel that they could go on strike because they felt that they would be defeated. Interestingly enough, the opposite is happening today. There are literally hundreds of strikes taking place and many of them are successful. And that breeds a confidence of workers elsewhere saying, you know what, we're being offered 2% pay rise. When inflation is 10 11%, we should have a go here because we can win. And so that confidence was what was missing 
in the 80s and we didn't have any leadership either in the industrial area or indeed in the political area of Kinnock and the Labour Party. There was no leadership that gave confidence to workers to stand up and fight back. I think we can see that membership climbing again, and I think you're right, Lenny, it's about the confidence of people, thinking that they can win, that they're not defeated. Absolutely. Just to add to what Len was saying, there were some leaderships which were outstanding in, in their heroism and, and leadership. I think the leadership of the National Union of Mine Workers during the one year of strike was really above and beyond. I mean, of course, mistakes were made. That's inevitable if you conduct a, a battle on that scale and for that length of time. But we have to pay respect to what the leadership of the NUM were doing and backed by their membership. That was the key thing. The members were with the leaders and the leaders were with the members. That's in stark contrast, as Len says, to the, the attitude of the Labour Party, which was to give no support at all to the miners. Quite the opposite. Absolutely. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Scargill was accused of telling lies when everything he said came true. A declaration that they were going to close all the pits as opposed to just a few pits that they were talking about. And he was proved 100% correct. The one thing the establishment and the bosses are very clever at is learning from history. We don't learn enough. 1972, 1974, the Conservative government was defeated by the mine workers, led to a general election which they lost, and they never, ever forgot that. And they worked out a plan as early as 1976, 1977, as to if they ever got back into power, they would seek retribution. That's exactly what they did with the miners. Um, I'm going to move on to something a little lighter. So in the trade union protests and strikes that are going on, there are other protests and strikes going on, the anti-apartheid movement, as we see with Dunstall. There's the troubles in Northern Ireland that are really huge at that time. And there's also other cultural things that come up behind it, like Rock Against Racism. You get bands like the Flying Pickets, UB40, talking about where people are at. Why do you think the trade union movement connected with those other protests? Well, certainly the more radical and progressive trade unions did. I'm fortunate to have been a member and a full-time official in the Transport and General Workers' Union, which is now, of course, Unite the Union. And we developed from there a culture that meant trade unions weren't just about winning paying conditions in the workplace. But it was also about our members living communities. The anti-apartheid movement was very close to my heart. The Chile Solidarity Campaign, the attacks on Cuba, all of these became issues that workers bought into because of the common theme of fighting injustice. The media and the right wing would have you believe that trade unions should just stick to the factory 
and nothing else. But they fail to understand that those workers go back into their communities and engage in the injustices that take place there. And that can be powerful if you are involved in uh, the Grandfield tragedy, which has seen an enormous response from the community, people coming together, people understanding that by working with each other, that solidarity, it gives them a louder voice. And so it was natural for me that that should happen with lots of good trade unions other than my own also playing a critical part. The other side of that coin is that British trade unions have always had a, an international dimension. Partly it's the product of being the centre of the British Empire, but partly it's the influence of Marxism growing in the 19th century amongst trade unions and working people. And so the trade unions have always had this major international dimension. If you look particularly at the dock workers, if you look at Australian dock workers' unions, who formed them? But Irish and British dockers going to Australia in order to do so. And it was the same in the Caribbean and in Canada and Ireland, of course, has always had very close links with Britain. And in South Africa, and many unions have got particular links with South Africa. So I, I represented the National Union of Mine Workers in we always had a, a very close relationship with the South African mine workers. So there are these links between unions, particular trades having links with the equivalent trade unions all over the world. And, of course, the miners' strike had a particular international dimension in that they needed lots of money because they were out permanently for a year. No strike pay. Assets of the unions sequestered and... Workers all over the world were supportive and sent money. I remember having a legal consultation in my chambers in London. One of the uh, general secretaries of one of the area unions came in carrying a suitcase and I said to him, Billy, you stay in the night. He said, no. He said, have a look at this. And he opened the suitcase and it was just full of French and German money. So those links were formed quite deeply, I think. And it was the same in the dock strike, links all over the world. Yeah, I mean, obviously, I worked on the docks. You would get ships coming in from all over the world with the seafarers being able to tell you what was happening back in their hometowns. That became very involved in the Chilean Solidarity Campaign when the democratically elected government was overthrown by the American CIA coup because I spoke to the Chilean seamen who used to explain what was going on. And so those links, as John has said, are deeply rooted in many areas. There's members in Rolls-Royce up in Scotland refused to service the engines on the jets that were being used to suppress the Chilean people. Absolutely fabulous heroes themselves. And that's how these things spread and how trade unions rightly get involved in things outside their workplace. It's why when I was General Secretary, I created community branches. I think that's intrinsic to what happened, especially post-war. I know many of the former colonies that became independent 
did that out of union movements, whether on their islands or their countries, to get to where they are today. And I think that's one of the legacies that the trade union movement left. In terms of employment rights, do you think from that period there's some kind of legacy that we can take forward now in order to kind of inform younger people today? Yeah, well, if you just go back for a moment to 1970, the Tories introduced a bill called the Industrial Relations Bill, which became an act in 1971. And this was a complete transformation of labour relations, uh, restrictions on trade unions and some employment rights. And that was effectively defeated by two minor strikes in 1972-1974 and massive organisation amongst the labour movement against the Industrial Relations Act, leading to the defeat of the Tory government in 1974 and the introduction of Wilson's Labour government, which reversed and solidified what the law was on trade unions, giving them effective freedom to take industrial action and and support collective bargaining and so on. When the Tories came to power in 1979, they learned that it was a tactical mistake to make all the legal changes in one act. So they didn't. They did it over five separate acts of parliament during the course of the 1980s, each one tightening the screws even more on trade union ability to defend the working class. That really is the history of the 1980s, just getting more and more restrictions on trade unions. It's true that there were employment rights which we hadn't had before 1970, like the right not to be unfairly dismissed and so on. But I don't consider those individual employment rights significant in comparison to having the ability of a trade union to defend the worker at the workplace. That's the most important protection a worker can have. It's the most important chance of improving working conditions and, and the condition of working life. So by restricting trade unions, the Tory government were very effective and unfortunately it has to be said that in the years since there's been no retreat from that even during 13 years of a Labour government. The restrictions on trade unions have not been modified. The decline in the coverage of collective bargaining, that's to say the proportion of workers who have the benefit of having their terms and conditions negotiated by a trade union on their behalf, declined in a steady state and if you look at the statistics, in 1976, prior to the Tory government, 86% of workers had the benefit of terms and conditions negotiated by a trade union on their behalf. Now it's down to about 23%, which means that three quarters of our workforce are at the mercy of employers. The legacy that you talk about is very real because Thatcher was completely successful. Back in mid-70s, the proportion of GDP, our gross domestic product, the wealth created by ordinary people, 65% of it went into the back pockets of workers in salaries and wages. Today, that is down to 50%. Now, that 15 
5% drop is dramatic. The wealth hasn't disappeared. It's still made and it goes to the 1%, the bosses, the multinationals. And of course, the inequality, John mentioned about stagnant wages. That is all because of the restrictive nature of trade unions fighting back. And that's why trade unions do have to come up with new ways... I'm very proud of the fact that we created in Unite a strike fund that is the largest strike fund in the whole of Europe. It means that when our members go on strike now, they get £70 a day, £350 a week. And make no bones about it, it has given enormous confidence to workers. There's currently literally hundreds of disputes taking place in Unite. And it's because they have the confidence not to be starved back to work, wondering where the next meal's come from, wondering about the mortgage payments. And trade unions need to look at that. Workers in Britain are the worst protected workers in the whole of Europe. This is the nation that actually, at the end of the Second World War, defeated fascism and gave to Europe all of the benefits, all of the laws to protect them that they currently have. And yet today, German workers, Italian workers, Dutch, French, all of them have got better protections than the very nation that actually gave them their protections when we defeated fascism. It's an outrage, it's a stain on every government. Conservative governments, obviously, we know they're anti-union and anti-worker, but Labour governments as well. There's an awful acceptance amongst many, many workers about not questioning that the law is wrong. Mm -hmm. You know, I was once asked, well, oh, so you would break a law. Well, in my union, we took a decision that, yes, we would, because I have a belief that if a law is implemented against a minority of people that disagree with it, then there's a duty to stand up against that law. And trade unions and trade union members need to always have in the back of their minds that these laws that were introduced are bad laws and are there for one reason only, and that is to restrict their ability to get a fair amount of pay and conditions for the wealth that they create and to make certain that they are protected against unfair practices. We need to constantly remember that. The Dunn's store strike eventually leads to the Irish government being the first country in the world to bring in sanctions against South Africa and like banning the importation of their food. If you had one wish to ask our government to do something tomorrow in regards to trade unionism, what would that be? Resign. Yeah, vanish. <laughs> 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 yeah, of course, look, this is a classic. I mean, John, you've spoken about, you know, the amount of employment acts that were either amended or brought in, trade union acts that were brought in. Which one could at least be a good start for us if we got rid of it? They're all interlinked. That's why John yeah. uh, pointed out the fact that they learned from the mistake in 1970-71 with the Industrial Relations Act. And it wasn't just in the 80s, it wasn't just under Thatcher. Cameron introduced uh, the Trade Union Act that David Davis, a very, very prominent Conservative MP, said that this was disgraceful. This was akin 
to what could have been introduced by Franco under his fascist regime in Spain. So it continues today. So you can't just pick one. It has to be a political decision. It's got to be the Labour Party, presumably, although I'm not overly confident about where Starmer sits on these things. But there has to be a movement amongst the trade union movement collectively to insist that those type of restrictions are completely lifted, all of them. Nobody wants special treatment, but we do want to be treated the same way as our sisters and brothers in the rest of Europe. I mean, we have um, articulated what labour law ought to look like. I'm chair of the Institute of Employment Rights and working with Andy McDonnell, MP, I was advisor to a group of trade unions who came up with what is now called uh, a New Deal for Working People, which was endorsed by the Labour Party conference in 2021 and 2022. The challenge now is to make sure that the current Labour leadership do not detract one ota from the proposals that are in there. And that would transform industrial action law and the law on collective bargaining in particular. It would require collective bargaining on a mandatory basis across all sectors of the economy, which would make such a difference to working people's lives. John has done fantastic work on this. And if you just correlate the reduction in collective bargaining and the reduction in the share of wealth that goes to workers, they run parallel. And therefore, for any Labour leader and uh, any trade union leader, anybody believing in justice, it's very evident that in order to get rid of the inequality that we have in our nation, John's talking about the 5 million young kids go to school hungry every day in the fifth richest nation in the world. It's an outrage. So let's end on a positive note, on a personal level. If you had to pick one thing that sticks out for you in the 1980s, what's the memory that you treasure? I suppose... It was that working-class solidarity that I seen during the miners' strike. It almost still brings tears to my eyes. In Liverpool, and this was happening all over the country, there were food banks, areas where people could come and donate food that would go then to the various mining communities and to see little old women putting in a can of soup and kids coming with things. My particular branch, we adopted Armtor Colliery in Yorkshire. And the amount of generosity that was seen, I can remember at Christmas, and this came very often from some of our shop students who weren't particularly left-wing, but they had a, that working-class feel and collecting toys for the children to be taken over in lorry loads was heartwarming. It reinforced um, my faith in my class and I still believe that's incredibly important in political terms. I see it in what you're doing in Grenfell and when tragedies like that occur, the goodness of working people is astonishing. And so, strangely, even though we were defeated, 
That is something that um, I remember very, very well and very fondly from the miners' strike. John, your treasured memory? Well, not surprisingly, my, my treasured memory is exactly the same. It's the class solidarity in, uh, during the miners' strike. I spent um, nearly two years doing nothing but work for the NUM, all the civil cases, all the dozens of injunctions that were sought against the NUM. And I, I became very, very close to the mining community uh, and indeed the leadership of the NUM in, uh, as well. And that intimacy, seeing that class solidarity, it does move me to tears as well still when I think about it. I did actually weep when the miners went back to work without a deal. I remember watching on television the Māori miners in South Wales with their banner and I just cried. I, it was so emotional, so many hopes hung on it. The other dimension of that class solidarity was also the perception and the insight that those people had, not just the leaders, but ordinary miners, most of them not well educated, but their insight into what was going on politically, how the economy was being run and their understanding of what was happening globally, I found really quite breathtaking. I've spent my life reading books. These guys hadn't, but they still had the understanding that their strike, it wasn't about money, it was about the economic future of their communities. Can I just quickly finish on something? Because you mentioned about Ireland becoming the first nation to take action against. How do you think those Duns workers must have felt by that? What heroes they are. And I hope all of them understand just how deeply, deeply grateful we are for the stands that they take. It must be incredible for them to know that the heroics that they displayed during that nearly three-year dispute led to a change. It just shows that people power, mm. when it's brought together, uh, and can't it all, achieve anything. Yeah, and it also shows the perception that they had. I mean, how would they know about the conditions in South Africa? Uh, they didn't. And this is my experience, that when any workers go on strike, they become politicised. And that's exactly what happened with the Duns workers. They had an opportunity to go back. Some of them lost their houses. But they grew in strength because they wanted to know, well, yeah, we think we're doing the right thing, but are we sure? And they found out and they became stronger and stronger and stronger. And that's what happens with working people when they do go out on strike. They become politicised as to the nature of injustice within society and the causes that they might be fighting for. A story there of solidarity, betrayal and defiance. Thanks to Lord John Hendy KC, Len McCluskey and Yvette Williams for sharing their insights into a crucial episode in British politics. In the next episode of Activism in the 80s, veteran anti-apartheid campaigners remember the tactics that shamed big business. To go to those AGMs, eat the canapes and drink the champagne at the beginning and then disrupt the whole meeting. 
by asking questions, then standing up and chanting. And it was just sweetened by the fact of having eaten the canapes and drank the champagne. And all these people that had come from all over the country for this AGM. And we did that every year for quite a while. Listen to the next episode of Activism in the 80s now, wherever you get your podcasts. Activism in the 80s is a podcast series recorded in response to the play Strike, written by Tracy Ryan and produced by Ardent Theatre Company at the Southwark Playhouse London in April 2023. This series has been funded by the National Lottery Heritage Fund and was produced by Creative Kin.